You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Um, before we get into our sermon uh, for this morning, just wanted to let you know that our next series coming up is on the local church. And so, um, you know, as, as a church plant, we've many of us have come from different places and there's just different understandings of what the local church is and what it does. And so we thought it would be good for us to take uh, some time, not to talk about everything connected to the local church, but to talk about a number of things as to what's, God purpose, what's God's purposes for a local assembly of his people in a specific place, in a specific time. So we're going to talk about things like mission and leading and following membership and giving. So Harold is going to start us off next week in talking about mission. So I just wanted to let you know that that is coming around the bend. Most of you, I think, looking out here have been with us for the last, you know, couple of months. But if you haven't been with us here, uh, we have been going through Genesis chapters 1 through 11, um, covering some stories that many people are familiar with. If you grew up in church at all and went to Sunday school ever, you would have heard some of these stories. Mostly we've been hearing about real people, things that really happened. We've been hearing about families. We've talked about Adam and Eve who were this brand new creation out of uh, Trinitarian love. God created a man and a woman who would be in relationship with him and who would know him and would love him and would walk in what the Hebrews would call shalom. They would walk in peace with God. And then we saw how sin entered into the world through choices that were made by Adam and Eve. And the shalom was broken. Peace was no longer there. There was trouble and strife and difficulty. And so the world still today is as it is because of the results of sin entering into Adam and Eve. And then we talked about their kids, at least the brothers. You know, there might, there's probably others along the way, but at least the brothers, Cain and Abel, as they come into this world, and we saw the experience of sin in that relationship as it was also broken, primarily between God was the starting point, but then with each other as well. And we have murder coming onto the scene within a family context even. And we talked about, for a couple weeks, about Noah and his children and God providing an ark that would be a, a way of salvation for them uh, in the midst of judgment and sin that was existing on the world around them. And throughout the stories we see, and hopefully you've even felt like aspects of your own life kind of showing up within the narrative. Like little things, maybe feelings, maybe choices, maybe consequences. So these are things that you can kind of argue over the historicity of these things. But the felt reality of all of us is that we see the very same things happening in their lives happen in our own lives. Because every single one of us is touched by brokenness difficulty, hardship, and there's also, we'll talk about it in a little bit, a longing for a greater connection with something that is bigger and beyond us. And now we come here to Genesis chapter 11, and all along the way, 
the human experience has been really important. It, it connects us to the narrative. But the question that the text is wanting to answer from page one of your Bible, actually not only through page, you know, chapter 11, but right to the end of Revelation, the question that it's wanting us to understand and it's wanting to answer for us is, what is God like? If God is creator, if God is maker, if God is to be trusted, and for our belief to be put in, in him, then what is this God like? When all kinds of different circumstances come on the scene, what does God react like? Can we trust him? Can we hang onto him as in his character? And so here we are in chapter 11. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 11, or maybe you have a phone, and we're just going to look through the text again like we normally do, kind of going verse by verse and seeing what does it have to say to us, what can we learn about ourselves, what can we learn about God from the text here. And we're going to start with this idea of making a name. This is a theme that we see coming out here in the first few verses. Making a name. Look at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So here we see a people gathering together with a common purpose for making a name for themselves. This, this wasn't just like a uh, massive construction project, though it was going to be that. Maybe some of you um, are going to, to Disneyland, to Florida. I don't know if anybody's going to Florida this, uh, you know, maybe next month. Or maybe you went there already, okay, and you got like a glow about you, okay. But maybe you went to Epcot. And I don't know if you knew this about Epcot, but Walt Disney, the founder of Walt Disney, uh, really had in his mind, when he thought of the idea of Epcot, of a city, a city of the future. And he had this massive plan and design, you can see it there, where people would live together and everything would be like just clicking along like one big giant machine. And now Epcot is kind of like, you know, you see a few places around the world, you ride the thing that's inside the big ball and that's about it. But his vision was massive, a big construction project that never took off. Or maybe you've heard of the Saudi Arabian Neom project, which is one of the pieces of that Neom project is the line. I don't know if you've heard of this, this building that is being built. It's a city in a single building that is going to cut straight through the desert and it's meant to be 170 kilometers long with the whole city inside of it, okay? This might seem like futuristic, but they are laying the foundation for that as we speak. Construction is being built. Okay, what's happening here, back to the text, okay? Now all the engineers are like, yes, let's talk more about this line project. What we have happening here in the text is not just like a, a, an amazing new human project. These people are not just building, you know, the next mega project. 
what we see happening in the text here is two specific things. They are wanting to make a name for themselves. You see that at the end of verse 4. And they're wanting to do the exact opposite of what God has mandated them to do. They are all wanting to come together. So whatever God's vision was for their lives, they want the opposite of that. God said, be fruitful and multiply. We saw last week that it was like the second time that he is giving that mandate to humanity. And now they're saying, we've got a better idea, actually. We're going to all cluster together, and we're going to build this magnificent, you know, this it probably it was like a, a pyramid-type structure where we can climb up into the clouds. You have this kind of God-like language, and we can be like God. We can make a name for ourselves. People will talk about us. And so here we have on display the power of human pride. Not the, not the good kind of pride. You know, there's a pride where, you know, if you have a little kid and they come home and they've just done a great project at school and you're like, I'm super proud of what you did. This is wonderful. This is a pride that is at the core of the human heart where it's more than just satisfaction in something that's been done. It is a desire for more. It is a desire for recognition. And in this case, it's a desire to, to be like God or put themselves in the place of God. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction. Maybe you've heard that proverb before. Pride goes before destruction. So this is the sequence of how it works where internal pride begins to rise up and grow and our plans over God's plans become the greatest good. And there is a text in Isaiah which many attribute to the fall of Satan and demonic beings. Okay, it's not, it's not super clear within the text if that's exactly what's happening. But when we read it, we get a, a glimpse into what Proverbs was talking about there. That pride goes before destruction. Because here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 14. I don't have the verses on the screen here, but just listen to this. Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 13. It says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So, Isaiah here is recording like an event that has happened where uh, a being of some sort had this intention in its heart to rise up. And, and like the, the same kind of imagery that we see in Genesis chapter 11, we see this here in Isaiah 14 where it says, I'm going to rise above the heights of the clouds. Kind of the same picture of like greatness. Like bigness, a big name. And this is going to be my intention, to be like God. And so we see here in Genesis chapter 11, and we've seen it in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, where Satan came to Adam and Eve. The same kind of promises, the same kind of temptations are on display, which is pride. The subtlety of pride. And it's, it's 
it's so amazing to see that what Satan has done from the beginning is the very same temptation that many of us still face on a, on a regular basis. We live in what many people call the age of uh, the self. Many people have coined that phrase, the age of the self. So historically, you would have lived in a time period where you would have got your affirmation of your place in society by the people who knew you best. Usually it was you lived in a small town or maybe a village or maybe you lived in a neighborhood in a community and you kind of grew up in this space and everybody knew you and you fit into that space. The community around you kind of affirmed your place in it. And if you wanted to do something, it was the community that would affirm that in you. That's not the world we live in anymore. The world we live in now says the, the greatest good, the, the truest truth is what you find actually within yourself. And this is primarily in kind of the Western world mindset. So here's the, here's the modern day way of discovering who you are and what you're supposed to do in this world. You're supposed to look inside and what you discover inside should correspond with what you feel. And then when you kind of reveal that to the world, the world then is supposed to like just completely affirm that. So that is what we call the age of the self. And this is the world that we are living in. It's, it's not necessarily completely new because pride is not new. We have always lived in a world that was filled with pride. We just read it in Genesis chapter 11. In 400 AD, Gregory of Nicaea wrote this, For as soon as a man satisfies his desire by obtaining what he wants, he starts to desire something else and finds himself empty again. And if he satisfies his desire with this, he becomes empty once again and ready for still another so Gregory of Nicaea is writing 1,600 years ago saying, there is this insatiable desire for us to have what we want. For us to be the center of the world, for us to be the, the center of all that is important to us. This is a thing that is just constantly pulling us in. And here in the story we see pride is driving these people. Pride is causing them to do the opposite of what God has designed them to be and to do. And now it's, it's, it's pulled them all together for this mega project of making a name for themselves. So what does God do? Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city of the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they pr propose to do will now be impossible for them. So we see here that God sees everything that they're doing. God, what what their, their plans are, what they're thinking about doing, the intention of their heart is laid bare before God. And I don't know if that's a, a comforting idea for you or not. Maybe that's like a, a scary idea for you. It's kind of like um, if you've seen the movie The Lord of the Rings, it's almost like that, you know, when they, they put that ring on and then boom, there's like this big burning, flaming eyeball that's just staring and he can like see right into their deepest 
soul. Maybe that's what you feel this kind of seeing is, where God can see everything and God knows everything. Partially that's scary because there's so many things that we do that other people don't know about. There's so many thoughts that we think about that we would never want anybody ever to know that they crossed our mind. And yet, here it says that God can actually see all things and God knows everything that's going on. God sees. But there's a negative view of that. There's like a a scary kind of Lord of the Rings view of that. Or there's a loving parental view of that. So your kids, especially when they're younger, they don't even realize it, but you are watching them all the time. Hopefully, right parents? You know, like you're seeing them and you can even sometimes see, you know, you're seeing this event happen and you're like, I know this is not going to go well. I know how the next five minutes are going to play out. It's not going to go well. And so you kind of preemptively jump there and get in there. It is good and right and loving for you to see and know what is going on as a parent. And even here, when we see God coming on the scene, it is good and right, and it, is, it can actually be a comfort to us to know that God sees and knows all that's going on. How is this possible? Let me just list four things really quickly why it can be a comfort. One is to know that God is in control. In, in Scripture and theology, we call that that God is sovereign. Nothing happens. Listen, nothing happens in the world outside of God's will and God knowing it. The, the good things that happen in this world and even the terrible things that happen in this world, God knows all of them. God is, his plans are not hindered by them. He's able to work his, his good purposes through them. We see this when we read the book of Job where all these terrible things happen to Job. The worst things, the things that none of us would wish on anybody to happen, and yet God is faithful and he is in them. He's present with Job. So God is in control. It's a wonderful truth. Second, God is able to bring comfort into into every situation. So you may have things that have happened to you that you you don't want to share with anybody, but God saw them. God was there. He can bring comfort and peace no matter what. He is present to be a comfort to you. So God is in control. God is a God of comfort. God can provide on the spot. This week I was listening to the story. I don't know if you've ever heard of the story of Martin and Gracia Burnham. If you haven't, I would encourage you to just look them up on, on YouTube or look them up online. They were missionaries who were taken hostage just after uh, like 2001, kind of 2002, 2003. They were taken hostage. And uh, Martin was actually killed in captivity there. But, but Gracia tells a story of being with her captors. And discovering in that time of her being a hostage of the sin and brokenness in her own life as she thought thoughts about these captors. As she was envious when they would have extra food and she wouldn't get it. How she would be angry towards them and what they were doing towards her. And she said that she spoke with her husband Martin about this 
And she was like, I thought we were supposed to be Christians. You know, like we're supposed to be patient. All the fruit of the Spirit, where are those things? And her husband said, Gracia, let's pray that God will actually manifest those in our lives. That the Spirit would provide those things for us. And she said, over the time, and I don't remember how long this took her. I believe they were in captivity for about a year. She said, actually, over the time, God grew that fruit in her life. God provided. In the worst of circumstances, God provided. He was a comfort, and he was in control. And finally, God gives us protection. It may not be the protection that we want. Martin and Gracia probably would have wanted a different kind of protection. But God says, I'm watching over you. I see everything. You are safe in my will. Which means, church, that we can, we can go and live the life that God has called us to live. We can take steps of faith and step out and trust him. So then we see here, as God is seeing all that's going on and he is knowing the heart of what they are thinking and desiring, that God acts. Verse 7 says this, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its, call, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So God comes down and sees what's happening, knows what their intention is. And God's will is not thwarted. So God's original plan of seeing people worship him as they spread out over the planet was still going to happen. And so we see here that he sends them out. He, he confuses their language. And so, you know, today we live in a world with six thousand languages. I think there are all, all kinds of dialects, all kinds of language dispersed all over the world. This is what God brings about. God causes this to happen. God's will is not thrown off. And so we see here, even in Genesis chapter 11, through, through chapters 1 all the way to where we are today, that God's plans are brought about. God's plans are not stopped because of the choices that people make, because of the mistakes that people make, because of the sin that's in the world. God's plans still come together. It is a promise that we can hang on to. And you can see here again that there is a longing for people to be a part of something that is greater than themselves. There is a desire that they have to be a part of something big. There is a desire that people have. We, we see it around the world to be involved in something that's great. But because of our sinfulness, it often ends up being trouble, disunity. You know, you think nowadays of politics or you think of the global affairs that we are seeing around the world. You think of even uh, the theological division in the Christian world. There's all these big things that people want to be a part of that actually end up being trouble and bringing disunity. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, famous sermon called The Weight of Glory, talked about this idea of how we have a desire to be a part of something that is 
bigger, greater than ourselves. And Lewis writes this, Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. Lewis is saying, listen, there's always been a, a desire that we've had as people to be connected to something that is greater than ourselves. And many people face this, you know, what you could call an existential crisis. It often comes, like, to its pinnacle when you're, like, in your 40s, okay? It's like, what am I here for? What's the purpose in life? What am I doing? And so people try to find the answers to that in hobbies, in the work that they do, in relationships. But all of those, all those things, as wonderful as they are, they all leave us wanting, like, more. They never fully satisfy and when it comes to the, to the gospel, to the message of what Christ has done for us, it is a greater, deeper, fuller story of meaning that actually God has made us to be wired to it. And when we find our satisfaction in the gospel and in the work of what Jesus has done for us, we experience it. And Hopefully all of us have had that experience. And it doesn't always stay with us. And so it, we kind of lose the sense of it. But there's this actual feeling, knowledge, heart pull of being connected to something that is greater and bigger. It is called the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Paul says th this is the gospel. This division that we constantly face within ourselves, within our society. There is a unity here that is greater than ourselves. It's actually sourced in God himself. Then in verse 19, Paul continues. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul says, this is the unity that you are actually made to experience and to know. It comes from outside of us. It's, it's not a project that we are doing. It's not a project that we are in charge of or that we want our name attached to. It's actually a, a building, a temple, he says here, that is built by the Lord. And we connect our story to God's story, which gives us the greatest fulfillment. So how do we do that? Just to close with this, how do we actually do this? We've been talking about this for two months now. You know, do we just stop being prideful? Do we just stop being sinful? You know, just kind of buckle down and just keep trying harder and harder so that our, you know, our life is going to be better and then we'll live within the vision of God. There's a, a little booklet that I, I read uh, a couple weeks ago by Thomas Chalmers who lived in the late 1800s, early 1800s. This is the title of the booklet. It says, it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Attraction. 
We don't title books like that anymore, okay? The expulsive power of a new attraction. And in there, he gives an example of how, how is it that we actually can grow to love God, to live within his will for our lives. And Thomas says this, Here's an example. If you have a beaker, you know, you think of uh, science and using a beaker. He says, if you want to get all the air out of that beaker, like what's the best way to do it? Do you suck really hard? Do you get like a pump or something? Do you, how do you, do you work? Do you work? And he says, there's actually a really simple, simple solution to that problem. You fill it with a liquid. You fill it with water. And all the air is going to come out easy. And he uses that example to say, listen, if you want to know God's will for your life, if you want to experience the peace of God in your life, if you want to experience a life that's lived in victory, in God's will, he says, fill yourself with Christ. Fill yourself with the truth of who Jesus is. Don't try to do all these things. Fill yourself with who Jesus is to experience that newness of life in your own life experience. And so we come here to the end of chapters 1 through 11. We might not get back to Genesis for, I don't know, a little while here. But it seemed fitting to kind of end our series in Genesis here with a prayer from the Psalms. And it's actually Psalm chapter 90 is a a psalm written by Moses, the, the very one who wrote Genesis and the Pentateuch. And it's a prayer to the children of Israel. For them to understand who they are, who God has made them to be, and who God is. Where the center of their worship should be on the God of the universe. And here's what Moses writes. Psalm 90, starting in verse 12. So teach us to number our days, that we may, be, may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all the days of our lives. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your truths. Thank you for these stories in Genesis, Lord, that in many ways confound us. There is just deep mystery to them, Lord, and yet they resonate with us. When we look at them and we see them, we see ourselves in many ways. And we thank you, God, that over and over again, basically every Sunday, we have seen your gracious hand as you've pointed the way and you've made clear your will to be in relationship with us, for us to know you and to know our our purpose and our meaning in you. And so, Lord, this morning we declare again as a church, through Jesus Christ, our greatest good is to know him, to follow him. And so, Lord, when our hands are weak and we're not steady in doing it, I pray for encouragement and for strength and help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.